Amen. Open then back to Matthew. And here we are in Matthew chapter 18. And we continue our exposition through this marvelous book. This marvelous picture and look at the life of Christ in the gospel. And our subject this morning is forgiveness. And we know that in Christ, in the gospel, if you're a Christian, you know forgiveness is so good. It is so glorious. We, we love forgiveness. We love the mercy of God. We sing about it. We delight in it. We know we desperately need it. And then he so abundantly bestows it. It makes us marvel. It makes us weep. As we think about how do we relate to God and we relate to him by mercy and forgiveness. But when it comes to others and it comes time for us to forgive others and treat others with grace, things become much more stingy or much more difficult, doesn't it? But it's no less critical. Especially as we consider, as we've been doing, and that's why where we were the last couple of weeks, talking about church membership and how the church relates to one another and so forth. As we relate as a church, as it just spawns right here out of Matthew 18, you just see that we are a web of commitments to Christ. We are a web of relationships. We are a web of interlocking, believing sinners, though. And so that means as, as sinners, we will offend one another. We will sin against one another. And so what do we do then? You see that forgiveness is critical for the church. And to underscore this fact, one pastor makes this excellent point. He says this. He says, forgiveness is critical in our lives. In fact, every violated relationship that is ultimately ended is ultimately ended not because of the violation, but because of the unwillingness to forgive. He goes on, you can recover from any violation, from any breach, if you forgive. But when there will never be a reconciliation, it will be because someone will not forgive. And that's the truth that we find here in Matthew 18. The church is brought together by mercy and forgiveness. That's what founds the church. God's family, the church is held together by this mercy and forgiveness. That's what draws you in back to God, isn't it? That he is merciful in Christ and you're drawn to him. You are shown mercy. You relate to him by grace. But as he draws you into the church, he doesn't draw only you. He draws all of these other brothers and sisters in the faith with you. And we then make the people of God, the church. And how are we going to relate to one another? We relate in the same way that he relates to us. We relate by mercy. We relate by forgiveness, which that means as the body, because we're going to sin against one another, but as the body, what do you need to do? You need to put down your grudges and you need to forgive as God in Christ has forgiven you. If the church is going to hold, if it's going to really last and the gates of hell will not stand against it, it's because they are characterized by mercy, by forgiveness in the body. So put down your grudges, put down your offenses, and forgive as God in Christ has forgiven you. And we will consider that as we ask four questions in our text about forgiveness. These four questions are an opportunity for you to ask yourself to gauge, what am I working toward? Am I encouraging division by my bitterness or am I encouraging unity by my mercy? Which characterizes me? Am I fostering unity or fostering division? Well, are you forgiving? And these questions will, by the Spirit's help, uncover that for you this morning. Let's turn to that first question, and it's this. Does forgiveness have a limit? Verses 21 and 22. Does forgiveness have a limit? 
And again, these questions are spilling all out of this context of sin and repentance and discipline that we've been studying in Matthew 18 over the past month or so. And as you consider those things, sin, discipline, and repentance, you have to immediately then think about forgiveness. And that's why the text goes where it does. Does forgiveness have a limit? Is there only so much forgiveness to go around, especially within the church? Because again, just to review a bit of the the context, the context here is when there is sin in the body, when a sin has happened. Look back to verse 15 of Matthew 18. It opens with, if your brother sins against you. So sin's happening in the family of faith. What then are you to do about it? And of course, Jesus then spells out for us what we call the restorative process of church discipline. You call your erring brother to repentance. You call him away from his sin to turn back to Christ. And if he won't repent, if he won't turn from his wrong, then things escalate by more of the church being notified to join this call to rescue, to join you in calling your brother away from this spiritual suicide of holding fast to his sin. But the goal is always repentance. The goal is always restoration. The goal is always rescue away from sin back to God. So through the process of discipline, when it's first one-to-one, and then few-to-one, and then the church-to-one, Anywhere along that line, if the erring brother repents, then it's, what do you do now? (laughs) When he comes to you confessing and turning from his sin, repenting, what then do you do? Well, obviously, as we see here, you should forgive. You forgive the one who repents. You forgive the one who turns back to Christ. You forgive the one who asks for it. You forgive the one who comes and owns his wrong. You forgive the one who confesses it, the one who's seeking to make it right. And you receive him back into the fellowship. But again, still, but is there any limit to that? Yes, that's ideal, but is there any limit practically? Well, again, that's the very question we deal with. That's the one that Peter opens with in our text in verse 21. Let's see that. Matthew 18, 21. Then Peter came up and said to him, Lord, how often will my brother sin against me and I forgive him? As many as seven times? And in this suggestion, Peter, he thinks he's giving a great number because Peter He's been around Jesus long enough now, right? He, he knows Jesus is a merciful king and God. Peter knows that for himself. Christ has shown him grace. He's seen it now as the worst sinners in society are joining this band of forgiven followers walking after Jesus. Peter has seen everyone from the prostitutes to the tax collectors to the self-righteous to the self-seeking, just the worst of society, being forgiven, being fully received, and now they're in this, this band of forgiven followers. They're all forgiven by Jesus. They're all brought in by mercy. This king and his kingdom is grounded on forgiveness. And so should I forgive maybe seven times, Jesus? Again, that seems like a big number. And it was by comparison to the Jews of the day, the religious leaders. The rabbis dealt with this very question. As self-righteous as the Pharisees might be, they weren't totally ignorant about mercy. The whole sacrificial of the Old Testament, right, was all about atonement and forgiveness. They understood something about mercy, but they put the number at three. You can sin once and be forgiven. You can indulge that sin a second time and come back and be forgiven, even three times for that same offense. But once you get to the fourth, I'm sorry, you you are just mocking mercy. Justice remains for you. There's no mercy left. And so feeling so gracious, Peter at his suggestion, he more than doubles the number. He suggests seven. Jesus, we should forgive, right? Not three to four, not, not even six times, but seven times, right? As if to then say, Jesus, you impressed yet? 
Look how generous I am, how gracious I am. I'm starting to get this whole kingdom grace stuff, right? They talk about three times. Yeah, we're talking about seven. And Peter, as he so often does, speaks so boldly about which that he knows so little. Look at verse 22. Jesus said to him, I do not say to you seven times, but 77 times. You were close, Peter. You were off by times 11. I don't say seven times, Peter. You need to forgive him 77 times. Or some translations read it, read that way, 70 times 7. That would compute to 490 times. Frankly, I think 77 times is how you should translate that phrase. But evidently, the point is not, oh, well, once they sin the eighth time, or once they sin the 78th time or the 491st time, then boom, you lay the hand of justice on them. No forgiveness for you. Jesus' whole point is this, is what? Peter, you shouldn't be counting offenses. Remember the picture of love in 1 Corinthians 13 that Paul describes. It keeps no record of wrongs. We're not piling up a list of injustices, of slights and offenses, just waiting to then rain down our wrath once they hit the eighth time or the 78th time. That's not the mentality at all. No, no, Peter, We are to be generous forgivers, not calculating ones. When someone's wronged you and they come and ask for forgiveness, do you ever hesitate to say, I forgive you? Do you just start making those relational calculations in your mind? Like, what's this going to cost me to say, I forgive you? We've been here before over and over again, and you're coming back. This is the fifth time you've done this. This is the eighth time or the 88th time we've been here. Am I just going to let them walk all over me then? Is that what this means? If I forgive them once more, what does that mean for our relationship? What if I get hurt again? I can only handle so much, maybe seven times. And then Jesus says, well, that's noble of you, but try 77 or 490 or really a billion times. That's the idea. How could I ever do that? How could I ever do that? I'm so vulnerable then. Doesn't it mean something that I've been wronged? It does. And Jesus doesn't deny that. But he turns us to this illustration that follows, this parable to explore why it is we should be so quick to forgive. And it's really, we need to ask this next question. Does God's forgiveness have a limit? How much has he forgiven me? That's the question we need to ask. Does God's forgiveness have a limit? Verses 23 through 27. Because here Jesus tells this story to illustrate how God deals with us. How God forgives us. So before you start tabulating and counting offenses in your mind, thinking about whether you should forgive or not, you need to first stop and think about, try and tabulate if it's possible, how much has God forgiven me? Then maybe you have your answer. Because as we study this parable, this extended illustration, Jesus is showing us how it is that the Father forgives. And why this is so important, because it's His, God's bountiful forgiveness forms the basis for your own. That's why you forgive. His bountiful forgiveness forms the basis of your own. And He illustrates it to say, because that's how the kingdom of heaven works. Look at this, verse 23. Therefore, the kingdom of heaven may be compared. So he's making this analogy. Your relationship with God in heaven in this kingdom is like this story. 
compared to a king who wished to settle accounts with his servants. And so it opens. We find this king who's settling accounts with his slaves. These are slaves or servants that he's entrusted all kinds of assets and money to that they would go and make an investment for him. And they would make a great investment. And obviously they would get something, but obviously the king who invested in them would get far more. He's given them something to turn for him to make a profit. And so that initial investment he gives that he puts to his slaves, it's really a loan or in this case, really a debt. They they have to pay it back. It's an initial investment. And so there's one sense, the slave and the king, they're kind of like investment partners, but of course, they're just not on equal standing. Not at all. He's their king, remember? So he can settle accounts when he wants, and so he's got to do so. He wants to get a return on his investment, and it begins with this first slave we hear before him that owes a huge sum. Verse 24, when he began to settle, one was brought to him who owed him 10,000 talents. Wow, that sounds like a problem. That sounds like a lot, doesn't it? Uh, Bro, you have no idea. You have no idea. This is not $10,000. This is 10,000 talents. A talent, a single one talent, would be the equivalent of 20 years of labor. That's for one At a fair price, it would take this servant 20 years to make up one talent. Then there would only be 9,999 talents to go, or another 200,000 years of working. And you thought your retirement was a way off. To translate it in today's dollars, Bible student Michael Wilkins ran this tabulation. If you paid somebody 15 bucks an hour, and they worked 2,000 hours a year, they would make $30,000 a year. That's the price of, say, a day laborer. Take that $30,000 a year and times it by 20 for 20 years, and you get what one talent is worth, or $600,000. That's one talent. Again, times that by the 10,000 for 10,000 talents, and you have then accrued a $6 billion with a B dollar debt. The point is, there's no way he's paying this back, unless he's going to live another 200,000 years or rob the whole world. This was basically an incalculable debt that could never, ever be repaid. And in light of that, what's the king supposed to do? Well, he has some suggestions. He's just going to try and recruit what he can. What value does the slave have? Well, I can sell him and his family, at least get something on the slave block. Verse 25, and since he could not pay, his master ordered him to be sold with his wife and children and all that he had in payment to be made. And of course, whatever he's going to get, it's just a pittance compared to the debt that he's owed but it's all he could get from him. And so get this now, the slave is now going to beg. The slave who had squandered a world's worth of wealth. I mean, he financially messed up big time. I mean, he lost like a nation's worth fortune. Go to Elon Musk, go to Bill Gates and say, I'll pay you back the six billion. Oh, sure you will. And yet, even though he's in this huge debt, he's desperate doesn't stop him from begging and making these baseless promises. Look at verse 26. So the servant fell on his knees, imploring him, have patience with me and I will pay you back everything. Everything? Yeah, right. That's unbelievable. It's impossible. I can't wait 200,000 years for you to pay this back. I'll make it up to you, I promise. Please, just stop. You won't. You can't. The king knows that. He knows he's never going to get paid back. The servant, as he knows these things, he knows he'll never pay it back. He can't. There's no amount of time you can wait. Nothing's to be done. But the very desperation, 
the very consequence, the begging, the pleading, pricks this king's compassionate heart. Look at verse 27. And out of pity, compassion for him, the master of that servant released him and forgave him the debt. Just like that. Poof. Six billion dollars. What's six billion dollars among friends? It's just gone. You're free. An incalculable debt forgiven at a word. I mean, what a rescue this is. What a relief. What a great forgiveness that it's gone. Not, it's not even, I'll be patient and you pay me back. It, no, it's just gone. That's not between us anymore. Is this not just a glorious picture of the gospel of Christ? That's what it's here to illustrate. Only you have accrued a far greater debt than $6 billion or far greater than 200,000 years of hard labor or purgatory or punishment or whatever. Your debt's far greater than that. Your soul was lost for an eternity to be punished and damned forever. Why? Because you have affronted and rebelled. So holy a God is ours. So good a God is ours. You've spurned his goodness. You've mocked his authority. You've rejected his ways of the Almighty. The wage, the debt you've earned for your sin is eternal wrath for your soul, we read in Scripture. But in Christ, that debt that hangs over your head for every single sin is gone in Christ. It's forgiven. You are free. The debt is gone. But of course, you know how this works. The forgiveness isn't just gone. It isn't really free. You tell me there's a catch? Well, you understand how this works. When debts are forgiven, they're not, they don't, they're not just erased. They get moved. They get transferred. You still have to balance the books. Somebody has to take the debt. In the case of this story, what happened? The king takes the debt on himself. He says, I'll forgive you, which means I have to absorb that loss myself. He was taking the debt away from the servant, the slave, so he could take it on himself to let him go free. And isn't that the glory of the gospel? Your debt is not gone to be as if it was forgotten. And maybe it'll come up later down in your life or when you meet the judgment. No, your, your, your debt is gone because it's paid. There was a price paid and it was the blood of the Son of God. And he paid it in full such that he said when he died on the cross, it is finished. He assumed our debts and our sins to then take them. That the Jesus God, the infinite God in flesh, endured the eternal wrath of the Father for us who trust in him. That's grace. Comes to you free then as a gift. A gift and sacrifice that purchases mercy, love, and peace, forgiveness for all time. And that's while you were dead in your trespasses and sins. You couldn't even try and make promises, oh, I'll pay you back. You were destined for wrath, Ephesians says, but God. The difference is not you, it's God. But God being rich in mercy, Paul writes, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. And then he has to add, by grace you are saved. That is a gift. Nothing you've done. It's a gift bought by the Father through his Son for you. What a glorious Christ and gospel we have. And so if you ever wonder, does God love? 
Does God love, does God love me? You need to go back and look really hard at that cross. You need to go see again what's pictured here. You need to go and remember when that person who wronged you comes back and asks for forgiveness for the umpteenth time, you need to go back and say, but what do I know from the cross? And there, see the full extent, if you can even see it, of the love of Christ. A love that moved our king with compassion so that he didn't say a word when he was being falsely accused. A love that moved our king to not say a word when he was being wrongly beaten. A king that didn't say a word when he was going to be unjustly executed. A king that said in the garden, not my will, Father, but yours be done because I love them and I'm paying the price for them. See the love that purchased at so great a price, your forgiveness and mercy for all your sin. See the love that's brought you peace with God that you did not deserve. In Christ, we have redemption. Through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace. The riches of his grace indeed. A richness that you will never find the bottom of. You will never expose the end of the love of Christ. You will never outrun his love. You can never overdraft on his mercy. His grace is too rich. The price of the death of the Son of God was too great. His grace really is greater than all your sin. That's the richness of the gospel. But then we must turn next to ourselves and ask the question, but do I put limits on my forgiveness? Do I put limits on how I forgive? Because what comes next in this parable that Jesus just so deftly exposes the hypocrisy of the unforgiving Christian? What would you expect from the slave who had been just forgiven $6 billion? (laughs) He could dance on his head from joy, you would think, and delight. And, And you trust he would be so merciful. And you'd be right to expect that. Dare I say, as you look in your own heart, you might know that's harder to find than you think. And we find certainly in this example something much different from this one who was just forgiven. Look at verse 28. But when the same servant went out, he found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred denarii. And seizing him, he began to choke him, saying, pay what you owe. So instead of the king to the desperate slave, you've got the the forgiven slave to this other slave who owes him some money. A hundred denarii. And his invictive Vindictive response is just shamefully appalling, isn't it? It's really evil. It just uncovers and shows this forgiven slave has no idea what has happened to him. He doesn't understand what's been done for him. He does not understand grace. He is just settled on justice. When he was in need, he begged and pleaded for mercy. But now someone owes him something. There's no room for grace now. There's no room for even patience now. And if you didn't know it already, you see it in this illustration. It's a lot easier to receive forgiveness than it is to extend it, isn't it? In our pride, we can even demand forgiveness for ourselves. We expect leniency and mercy. But, But no such compassion gets shown to others when our pride or our significance or our importance has been slighted or undermined. 
instead of mercy, it's far more of just who do they think they are treating me like that? They owe me. Pay up now. And two contrasts further underscore how despicable, really, the servant's behavior is. In the first place, he's dealing with a fellow servant or fellow slave. It's his peer that he goes and chokes to try and extract money from him. When just moments ago, his king, not at all one of his peers, but his king just was so abundantly merciful. If your king would be so humble and gracious to you, shouldn't you just show something of that to at least your peers, to your counterparts, your brothers and sisters in the church? That's where this is going. Furthermore, then, you can contrast the debts that are being forgiven and talked about here. What was forgiven and what was owed? And again, the slave's bitterness becomes so pitiful, so evidently twisted. The slave, remember, he was forgiven freely 10,000 talents. We said the modern equivalent is $6 billion. And then he goes out and starts choking a co-worker, basically, trying to squeeze from him a mere 100 denarii. The modern equivalent of that from the same equations would be $12,000. Now, I don't know about your pocketbook, but $12,000 is not chump change. That is until you compare it to a debt that's been forgiven $6 billion. And once you do that, there is no comparison. When you take into account how much he was just forgiven and who it was who forgave him, how dare you hold such a grudge? Especially as his fellow servant begs for mercy. Look at verse 29. So his fellow servant fell down and pleaded with him, have mercy with me and I will repay you. Doesn't that sound familiar? Jesus is a masterful storyteller. This is almost the identical word that this forgiven, quote, slave pleaded with the king. The very same thing. This is like deja vu. Of course, though, at the desperate cry, the king forgave. But this slave, no way. I don't want to hear it. Pay me. Pay me. You owe me. You need to feel how much this hurts for me not to have this. And the horror of this is just magnified further. For in this case, if the slave would have been patient, it's not unreasonable to think that this other fellow slave could have made up the 12,000. Even if he would have just waited. In contrast, of course, to the debt that he had with the king, which was six billion. There's no way you're paying that back, no matter how long you wait. Not this slave, though. Debtor's prison for you. Verse 30. He refused and went and put him in prison until he should pay the debt. No mercy, no forgiveness, no grace. All debts, all it's just is debts and justice, timely repayments. Because to be clear, this isn't to say that the slave did not have a right to get back what it was owed him. But here's the point. We're dealing with mercy and forgiveness. This isn't about what is rightly due. This is about mercy. We're talking about forgiveness. We're not talking about what your rights are. We're not talking about what is just 
and equitable. We're not talking about what you are due. We are talking about grace. And that's where bitterness and grudges and divisions come in, isn't it? When your rights, what you deserve, what should come to you becomes far more important to you than mercy. You become far more focused on being vindicated, justified, then you do care about this relationship. Then you care about reconciliation. Now, when real wrongs have been done, and they cannot just be overlooked, they must be dealt with. What does that look like? Well, that means you need to talk to the brother. You need to call him to repentance. That's what starts this whole thing in Matthew 18, verse 15, when your brother sins against you. Wrongs cannot just be ignored, especially when the relationship has then been fractured. It's a glory to overlook a transgression, but not every transgression can just be put aside. But when you call them and they see they're wrong, they, they own up to it, they come to you asking for forgiveness, they repent, will you receive it? Will you offer forgiveness? Or is there a limit to your forgiveness? I just can't forgive that goes to that final question. Do I show the limitlessness of the Father's forgiveness? This is really the key question in verses 31 to 35. Do I demonstrate and show forth the way the Father forgives me and the way I treat others? Well, I'm not dense like this crazy slave. He's going around choking people. I'm not that bitter. Well, good. Please don't start choking people. But the kind of grace that we're called to in this kingdom goes far beyond that. Really, the real way to uncover, to discern in your heart, am I a graceful person? Am I a forgiving person? You need to answer yourself this question. Do I show to others the grace I've received from Christ? Do I treat others like Christ has treated me? Back to our story, you see. Because in the blindness of her sin and bitterness, you, know, you don't see how bitter you are. Because you're so consumed with rights or with justice. And you don't see your hypocrisy. And as so often is the case, you might not see your hypocrisy, but everybody else does. Look at verse 31. When his fellow servants saw what had taken place, they were greatly distressed. And they went and reported to their master all that had taken place. So some of the other slaves, they saw what happened. They saw him choking the other. They were grieved. It says they were greatly distressed. They were pained. They were exasperated to see such gross hypocrisy. To be forgiven so much and then so harsh about so little. And so they went and told their master about it. And remember, the king in this story... In the main, he stands in for our heavenly Father in heaven. That's where this comparison began. Such that as he rebukes in the story of the unforgiving servant, you gain insight until your heavenly Father sees those who will not forgive. And we know right from the get-go, this is no small thing to our Lord. Look at verse 32. Then his master summoned him and said to him, You wicked servant! You evil slave. You demented, corrupt soul. How dare you? Now, why is the king so harsh here? 
Is it because the slave wasn't really owed the money, the hundred denarii? No. Again, this isn't about rights. It's about grace. As the master goes on and makes so clear, as we go on in verse 32, you wicked servant, I forgave you all that debt because you pleaded with me. Should you not have had... Should you not have had mercy on your fellow servant as I had mercy on you? That's the issue. That's it right there. That's the evil exposed by the unforgiving servant. The king highlights what's been done. As he says, I forgave you all that debt. And and why did I forgive you? Because you asked for it. You cried out for it. You were desperate. You had no hope. You looked to me for mercy. I ate the debt myself and just forgave you. And then you turn around and so mercilessly throw your fellow slave in prison over this. Instead, verse 33, and should you not have had mercy on your fellow servant as I had mercy on you. And if you're familiar with the New Testament, those words should sound quite familiar. Like Colossians chapter 3, verse 13. If one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other. As the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. Or take Ephesians chapter 4, verse 32. Paul writes, be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another. Why? Just because we're supposed to? Well, yes. But he tells you why. Forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. Don't you see it? We go back to the gospel. Remember how Christ has received you. Remember how freely you were forgiven. How freely you were embraced. How undeserving of his mercy you were that you had nothing to offer him. You only brought debts. You only brought sin. And yet you were fully forgiven. Freely. By grace. I mean, again, consider what debt you've been forgiven. If Christ is yours... If heaven is yours, if peace is yours, if the grace of God is yours, remember, you're a sinner, a debtor. And if he's forgiven you all of that to give you all of this, how could you not forgive your brother? When he's given you something so great, so valuable, the salvation of your soul, how can you not forgive a far smaller wrong done against you? Because that's the thing. If you have received that mercy, you'll be changed by it. You will. That's the implication of this. Otherwise, if His mercy has not changed you, then God's mercy has not touched you. Then you don't get it. We might even say then, you're still in your sins. Hence, the punishment laid out for those who won't forgive. Look at verse 34. And in anger, His master delivered Him over to the jailers until he should pay all his debt. And honestly, that translation jailers is kind of weak. should probably render that tormentors or torturers. The idea in the Greek culture, they put you in a debtor's prison and they sick torturers on you. So you cry out and all of your family knows and anyone who cares about you, they do anything they can to get you out of that prison. Conjure up whatever dollars they can rub together to get you out of there, to get you out of the torment in the prison. Jesus uses that word jailer or tormentor later on in Luke 16 to talk about the torments of hell. And that's what's being pictured here. 
As James chapter 2, verse 13 says, For judgment will be merciless to the one who has shown no mercy. Ultimately picturing the mercilessness of hell. If you want justice, you can have it. It will just come at the cost of your soul. And then Jesus ends in verse 35, making the connection so clear. So also my heavenly Father will do to every one of you if you do not forgive your brother from the heart. That's heavy stuff right there. But that's how our Father looks at unforgiveness, at bitterness, at grudges, especially inside the church, especially in the family of faith. I mean, notice that he says, if you do not forgive your brother from your heart. There's no excuse for bitterness towards outsiders either. But the point is this, of all people, right? This is what the church is. We are people, we know our sin, we know our wrongful before God. We, we claim together to rejoice that we've been undeservedly forgiven. Again, we celebrate that, we sing that, we rejoice in that, but then to bitterly withhold that forgiveness from a brother and sister in Christ has no place in his kingdom. And really the point would be, and if that's you, then you've just missed it. You've forgotten what he's done for you. You've forgotten how costly is mercy. If the grace of our God and his forgiveness is not seen in how you treat others, then you have to question whether you've ever come to grips with his grace at all. Because note this, and this is the logic of the parable, he's not saying well, you better be really gracious and forgive a lot of people and then maybe I'll forgive you. No, the logic works. I have forgiven you incredible debt, so you forgive. Because the point is, if you've really been forgiven that incredible debt, it'll live out in your life. What comes first? His mercy, his forgiveness. And if that's touched you, it'll come out in your life. So you got to meditate on the gospel, don't you? We need to be dwelling in grace. What it means that God in Christ forgives you. Because get this. You are really never more like God than when you forgive. You are never more like Christ when you put down your rights, put down what's due to you, when you swallow your pride and you forgive. Now for time, we cannot then unpack all the related questions that come when you deal with forgiveness like this. Questions like, is restitution needed or ever appropriate? Can I forgive someone even if they don't ask me? It's very clear that we should have an attitude ready to forgive, but can you forgive when they don't ask? Or what if you have reason to to doubt the sincerity of the person asking you for forgiveness? Or what if I'm just still really hurt? Can I even forgive in sincerity? Do you want to go deeper on some of those questions about forgiveness? I want to commend you a book. Sorry, we don't have it in our bookstore. You can probably find it on Amazon. But John MacArthur's book, The Freedom and Power of Forgiveness. The Freedom and Power of Forgiveness by John MacArthur. He actually goes through a number of these tough tough questions. It'll be helpful for you. But really, you don't need all the details to live out the truth of this message because this much is clear. The more you lean into grace, the more you lean into mercy... The more then we become like Christ who loved us to then forgive us. Be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another. 
as God in Christ forgave you. Therefore, Paul writes, be imitators of God. Let's pray for his help to do this. Let's pray together. Father, what a glory it is to try and imitate you. And we get to imitate something that's so great and glorious about you that you just abound in mercy. That you are the Lord, the Lord of God, merciful and gracious and slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. And you've satisfied justice at the cross so that we might forgive. We might be fully forgiven and that we might forgive others as they come to us. May we as a people bought by your blood that rest in glory and grace be the most gracious people on this planet, ready to forgive, ready to point people back to where grace really comes from. And that's with you and the death of Christ and that resurrection. As a church bought by your blood, may we live to your glory in this, we pray. Amen.